Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to talk to Rajiv and we're going to talk about VC investing. What's the latest in the Bay Area in the United States? He's a very experienced investor and a partner at Sapphire Ventures. And so I'm very curious to know what investors are thinking. Of course, the economy is turning for the worse this year and that has impact on the funding, has impact on the performance. So curious to see how investors look at that. So very warm welcome, Rajiv. How are you today? I'm doing well, Rudolf. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you so much. Now, can you briefly introduce yourself and explain us how did you become the rock star of today, the VC investor? Yeah, far from Rockstar, but I appreciate the kind words. Quickly, I am a partner at Sapphire Ventures, which I'm happy to tell you more about, but I really joined the team about a decade ago. And But I'm born and raised in the Bay Area, been exposed to technology as a result for a long time and developed my passion there. And really began my career in investment banking with Goldman Sachs. And then my investment career right after that with a company called Silver Lake doing technology investing now, what, 15 or 13, 15 years ago. So I've been investing for over a decade into a few dozen companies, again, all technology focused. I see. So that is a great pedigree, of course. And so tell us about Sapphire Ventures. How long have you been uh, at it and who founded it and where are you based? And are you calling from... Bay Area these days, it doesn't necessarily mean that's where the firm is. Exactly. Exactly. Good questions. I've been with Sapphire for about a decade, but we've been around for a lot longer than that. And just quick snapshot on us is we are a leading global technology-focused venture capital firm. We have more than $10 billion now in assets under management. We have team members in London and offices in Austin and New York and Palo Alto and in San Francisco. Um, and our main mantra and goal is to partner with really visionary management teams to help them build what we call companies of consequence in the software realm. We've invested in over 170 companies globally, had companies, 30 of them go public, 45 of them were acquired. And we feel very proud of a portfolio growth team that we've built. It's about 20 folks now, roughly similar in size to actually our investment team that really sole job of theirs is to help our companies grow and scale and reach new heights. I see. And my understanding is that you focus on enterprise software, right? I like it because I come from the background of big companies. So I can appreciate that sometimes the technological debt that, for example, you find in banks can be sorted through innovative startups. But why enterprise software is so key for you as an investment thesis? For me personally, there was a personal backing and exposure to technology. I was born and raised in the Bay Area. My, my father was a pioneer in the semiconductor area, and then he moved on to entrepreneurship, ran a couple of companies, and then venture capital. So pretty eerie in that I have some similar convergence in, in my career. 
And uh, I think we just have a passion to partner with entrepreneurs that are building incredible, incredible businesses. I think we have a deep respect and admiration for just how hard that journey is. I saw that growing up and I see that now. And our job is to empower them. And that's what gets me up at night. Any way that I could help and frankly, learn from them, provide them guidance, but also learn from them is interesting. Enterprise software to us are stable businesses and can reach new heights. We all have that a little bit in our DNA and maybe none of us on the Sapphire investment team are cool enough to detect the next huge consumer internet wave. Although I think we've done pretty well historically there when we have focused on it historically, but we love the business models of enterprise software. We think they can grow to be way bigger than they were even historically. And so that's what excites us. I see. Look, the software, of course, has a disproportionate share of voice mm -hmm. in the media. But mm -hmm. when you look at the fintech funding in 2021 globally, I think two thirds went into B2B, right? The things are changing for investors, it looks like. So over your tenure, you said 10 years, the firm has been around for much longer, but you now have 10 billion under management. How many startups have you invested in? Or can you throw in some yeah. names as well or examples? And what does that translate to in terms of check sizes that people can expect from you? Of course, it's a range, but still. Yeah, yeah. Our current fund, is, it, we're on fund six. It's a $1.75 billion fund. We're still very active out of that fund, have a lot of capital to invest. I personally have invested in a couple of dozen companies over my career, anything ranging from a $10 or $20 million check initially to a $70 million plus check with the goal of, frankly, investing more over time. So we can invest in your series B or C, but then we can double down or just support you in every round and even at the IPO, which is what we have done, frankly, historically with some of the great names. So companies that I personally have been involved with over time include those like a segment or a Monday.com or a Braze and Outreach and many others in the fintech realm, TransferWise, I guess now it's called Wise, out of London, yeah. Square, and a few others there as well. And so hopefully that gives you a flavor of the types of companies and the check sizes that we really target. I see. And But how early do you go in? You mentioned round yeah. B. So do you go round A as well and seed and pre-seed or not really? Great question. And I was remiss to, to leave that out. We, we were expansion stage investors. Right. So we're not looking to come just in the pre IPO round, but you're correct. We do come in only after the company has very strong product market fit, ideally dozens, if not more customers, a few salespeople really selling the product and showing success and not just relying on the founder to sell the product and a few other attributes we look for. Oftentimes that materializes into a business generating anywhere from three to five to seven million of ARR. Again, there's no specific quantitative measure because you could be a 10 million revenue business with two customers that the founder landed because he had a friendly relationship with somebody. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have a repeatable motion and product market fit just yet, despite having 10 million of revenue. But more often that materializes into series Bs at the early end of the spectrum. And then I would say B, C, and D is where 80% of our investment dollars and what have you, I'm giving you a rough estimate, don't hold me to that, really go into. Occasionally a pre-IPO, occasionally a Series A, but that B to D kind of 3 million of ARR to, to 30 or 40 of ARR, that's the kind of sweet spot for Sapphire. 
I see. Obviously, I understand why you would prefer this. Now, in the last few years, though, the VC investment, investing, VC investing has become quite competitive. Mm. How did you find it to actually time it to get into the round B? Because obviously, there were other investors there. Maybe some of them, they don't want to follow on and other and etc. But I've heard from some investors saying, look, if this company was in the in the crunch base, it's too late already. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very wise question. We see this oftentimes, right? That a seed or series A investor will have a multi-stage. And so if the company is doing well, they'll want to put more money. But what I'm seeing actually, especially in this new environment, and I know we'll get to this, is that both investors and the entrepreneurs, the smartest entrepreneurs, do want some diversified pools of capital on the cap table. Having one more deep-pocketed investor come in to the company and be there to support you so you're not just single-threaded to one other, whoever led your Series A, for example, is actually going to be very beneficial, particularly in this new normal, whatever we want to call it, going forward, where a slightly more challenging environment than it was in the last two years when everything was up and to the right. That's A. B, we really have a differentiated, I think, value add being go-to-market scale experts and investors. Why not bring our network, our centers of excellence, our guidance? It's just additive. You already have the value as an entrepreneur of your Series A investor, whether they double down on your B or not. Why not make room for us in the B or C so we could just add to the business and add that value and perspective with everything we have to bring to the table. And then finally, we're somewhat, we like to work with the Series A investors. We're not gonna elbow them out if they want their full pro rata, if they want even a little bit more, we'll find a way in the round to make it happen. We've seen these journeys are five and seven years. There's many rounds. There's many more opportunities for everyone to invest more in the business if they'd like. All right, brilliant. So it's like a transition because if you're probably not going to need more than A and B rounds, right? So maybe that's why the founders are, are smart to talk to you, plus the expertise you mentioned to transition to, some, to somebody who can support them further. Now, what does that mean round B these days? Because I also heard mm -hmm. from someone saying that, look, early this year, apparently... Uh, all the founders were told by their investors and their advisors yeah. that they should raise three years runway, not yeah. a year and a half or something, because the times will be tough, etc. So actually, the investors were happy because now they were being chased by the founders, not the other way around. What's the dynamic in the US or in your space? Maybe using that metric of the runway, is that longer? Do you have more inbound requests by founders or do you need to reach out more or is it about the same? As a year ago. It is very different. This year is markedly different than, frankly, any year in the past 10 years. It's not just relative to 2020 and 2021. It's very different from 2014, 13, 15, 16, in that particularly at the B rounds and onwards, there's just a dearth of companies that are raising. Think about it this way. In 2020 and 2021, a company that would have historically just raised one time in that time frame. A great company that historically in prior years would have just raised once, raised probably two or three times. And a company that would have just raised, let's say, a $30 million Series B back in 2015 or 2016, ended up raising a 60 or $75 million Series B round. So you compound those two things. You're raising double the size of rounds, and then you're raising twice the price more. You probably, the typical company raised five times the amount of capital than they would have historically. And of course, 
burn rates went up and they were spending more capital to grow even faster. And that's okay because capital was free, quote unquote. But now with burn rates slowing down, given it's a tricky sort of macro environment, we all want to make sure our companies have this two, three, four years runway, depending on the company's situation, right? And the last round valuation, these companies are just so overcapitalized, again, to the tune of five times. Um, and they're sitting at a high last round price. And so the best of the best companies, they don't need to come out and raise this year. They may not even need to come out and raise the first half of next year because they don't want to test the market and see that the valuation might be flat to the next round, maybe even a little bit less than that last round that they raised in 2021. So what you have is an impasse where there's just a dearth of those kinds of companies. There are some companies, you're right, way more inbound coming to investors, those companies that maybe weren't able to take advantage of the incredible cap private capital markets last year. They're coming back and chasing sort of the investors to some degree. But by and large, we just see this impasse and therefore a slowdown in the level of high quality companies that, that really need to raise capital and test the markets. Wow, this is this is great color. That makes sense. Which leads me to my next question, irrespective of the cycle, or maybe it is dependent on the cycle. What is your investment approach? Of course, you are not a strategic investors taking mm -hmm. over the company, but do you push for the board seat, observer seat? How do you influence the growth? Or you said that you also have expertise that you can pass yeah. on to the founders. So is that through an informal arrangement or advisory board or something? Or is it like we only have 10% stake, but you should do this. Otherwise, yeah. we will be not happy with you. So you better do it. In other yeah. words, influencing a lot. So how yeah. does that work when you work yeah. with startups? Yeah, there's a couple of different parts to that question. I think one, and it goes to a prior question you asked, Outside of the numbers and the stage and B2B software, what we really look for is backing and partnering with what we call companies of consequence. To us, these are companies that can redefine or lead big categories, be global in scale, impact all stakeholders involved, not just investors, but the employees and shareholders and customers and partners and have this positive impact on communities and what have you. Those are the companies, like hopefully I mentioned, a segment or a Looker or MuleSoft or Exact Target or LinkedIn or Square. All of these companies that Sapphire has partnered with in the last couple of decades fit that mold. So that's first and foremost. And a big part of that is the people. We do take a very mission-driven approach around the people. Even at the BCD, it's not all about the metrics. It is still about the people. It's always about them. And so that's a big portion too. And as a result, while the majority of rounds we do lead and therefore have some sort of board director or board observer seat, we're not there to run the business for them. We do take a highly active approach. We are not a passive investor. Our main goal is to make the CEO and management team referenceable for Sapphire, right? Of course, provide the guidance and be honest and truthful and shareholder value. But beyond that is really be referenceable. In fact, Rudolph, we take an NPS score of our CEOs once a year and consistently rank above 80, right, on that score. That's how important we believe money is just money. Everyone has it. Everyone has their multi-billion dollar fund. What's really going to allow you to win in the next five, 10 years is that CEO and management team referenceability. The way we do that is not just by not stepping on their toes, but providing guidance, being adaptable to what they need from the investment professional, me, and my set of experiences being highly specialized in B2B software, at certain stages, so it's highly relevant experience I can give them. But also, as you just mentioned, our portfolio growth team, 
who have seasoned business development professionals to introduce them to incredible enterprises, incredible enterprise oriented talent. How do you hire your next CMO or CRO? And then finally, we have specialized sort of operators, revenue operations, former CROs, former CMOs, kind of operator talent that we can deploy into these companies and help just give advice. I see. Understood. So maybe let me follow up with one more thing. You mentioned B2B software mm-hmm. and technology and acknowledging that the technology is not the end. It's means to an end to me, right? Because you should mm-hmm. really look at the problem of your customers and then see what the solutions could be rather than trying to find a home for your beloved technology. But within that enterprise software or B2B software, what sort of subsectors do you like the most at the moment? Yeah, listen, we are pretty horizontal in approach. I think that at the infrastructure layer, we spend a lot of time on data, all things data, the data supply chain, how that's being reinvented, everything in and around Snowflake. There's three or four different categories that are fascinating. DevOps, how do you just improve developer productivity and how There's a shift left movement and developers are getting involved with more and more different aspects and then cybersecurity. In application software, I mentioned some of my companies, Monday.com, Lavongo, or Segment, Embrace. We look at functional functionals, areas of software, marketing and sales or others. And one of the areas that's really interesting is honestly the paradigm shift that's happening in the financial area of software. Companies that are building product selling to finance and accounting individuals, a back office function that maybe had Intuit or SAP as an ERP and nothing else. Everything else was spreadsheets, but now there's more and new interesting types of software being sold there. So I've made a few investments, frankly, in just in the last two, three years that are selling to that department because I just think there's so much more innovation there that's bound to happen. I literally see monday.com ads on YouTube a lot. Good to hear that you are horizontal, that you believe in big data, all kinds of solutions that can make the companies better. Now, before any of your founders get there, of course, it's a tough journey, as you said, right? That you're appreciative yeah. of the founder's journey that to get to that good product market fit and have a, you said, a couple of dozens of customers, right? That's mm-hmm. not easy. What would be your best tips for aspiring founders to start and grow their company in the B2B space? Because right. imagine somebody who just joined an accelerator. So fine, maybe they have one or two clients or an idea, and then they take some classes in that program and then need to scale up very quickly. Otherwise, they may be becoming a consultant. That's another issue right. that some of them have where companies push them to huge customization. So it's hard exactly. to say no if you just have one or two big customers at the beginning. So what would be your advice, how to overcome it, how to grow and get to that stage that uh, you can write them a check in a, a couple of years? Yeah, it's interesting, Rudolf. I get this question a lot and everyone has their somewhat one-size-fits-all answer. I'll try to get to that. I just really... I really feel like it depends on, let's just say the CEO, but really the co-founders, right? For example, I've partnered with one from a very earlier stage that, and I've known him for a while, that it's incredibly analytical. He comes from an analytical banking finance kind of background, which is atypical for a founder. And so he's incredibly analytical. So that's amazing. He's data-driven. He's analytical about every decision. But my advice to him is, is oftentimes, hey, lean on me and others be coachable about key operational decisions who have maybe seen this before and be decisive, right? Don't go through the analysis paralysis, use your instincts. It doesn't work. You got to trust your instinct at some point. 
But then I worked with another CEO and founding team who were one of those kind of creative operators, especially from a marketing standpoint, but really all around. And for him, we discussed a lot about what does best in class look like? How do you raise your B or C or D? What do you need to get to? How do you think about customer lifetime value? Why do those metrics even matter? And how do you permeate that across your organization to make it more data-driven? So it's an opposite advice. And so my job is really to help around the edges. If they are too far one way, I kind of to pull them in another way just to show them that perspective and have them pick and choose what might be helpful. But my broader advice to every CEO is, hey, pick and choose. Don't try to act like that other CEO on a podcast. Lean into your own superpower. First, understand your superpower and lean into it. Find ways that you can lever that. It's a little bit contrarian advice I got in my career, which is like, hey, find out what you're really great at and just keep doing that. Versus most people will say, hey, find out what you're not great at and really keep improving that and spend a lot of energy. You should certainly improve and be cognizant and self-aware, but really, if you can find out your superpower, keep doing it, pick and choose and take advice from others, but never change who you are, march to your own beat. Those are the kinds of founders that have done incredibly well and scaled from the A to the B to the C and on. Great stuff. Be true to yourself, right? I've yeah. seen a quote somewhere, be yourself because everybody else is taken. <laughs> exactly. And it's true. The best, I, a couple of the companies I'm thinking about, one is a $6 billion market cap company, and they always did their own thing. It was very anti-Silicon Valley, but they did pick and choose. And I'm glad some of the advice that we at Sapphire gave them, they picked and choose it. And I saw they started to adopt some of it, but they didn't let that alter the way they ran the business. They experimented the way they hired, the way they thought about the market. And that was super refreshing. And it ended up an incredible outcome. And I've seen that time and time again. All right. Now, following up on the founders and inbound versus outbound, how do you find the investment ideas? So it is mm -hmm. at stage B. So these companies have a presence, they have a internet trail, but how do you approach them? How do you prioritize who to talk to? And how do you make yourself known so they approach you as well? Yeah, it's it's interesting. We I almost feel like a VC organization is almost, especially from a sourcing perspective, like a sales organization that has outbound calling, inbound marketing driven pipeline, event referral or other high touch enterprise field driven pipeline and customer acquisition channels. We have the same thing. We have associates and frankly, everyone top down in our company is constantly emailing incredible CEOs that we see either on Crunchbase or we discovered through some other means. We have people and some referrals coming inbound, like we talked about before. And then oftentimes the partners have relationships with other partners of fantastic companies or investors that we admire that are earlier stage than us that are sitting on the boards of incredible companies. I make it my job to, to figure out what are the top 20 or 30 incredible earlier stage investors that I admire that have maybe similar interests and interest areas that I do and develop relationships with them, be helpful to them, be helpful to their companies. Even if they won't lead to an actual transaction, you got to pay it forward and build those relationships. So at some point they can introduce you to the company and advocate for you if you want to join the board and work with them on that particular company. Sound, it sounds like it's a combination of proactive and inbound, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. I'm glad to hear that because sometimes people say that only invest in yeah, ideas that come through them through the network, which of course it's a de-risking technique, but also then you don't give a chance to somebody who is not in the network, right? The right. founder who is not in the network. So 
they still can have a life-changing idea or world-changing idea. But related to this, we talked about the what's going on in the economy. Do mm-hmm. you see the valuation? So you said the good companies or the best companies, they've raised uh, money at great valuations and now they don't want to spoil it and they don't need to. We've seen probably slower deal flow this year or this summer. But in general, do you think that the valuations are tapering off versus last year for the deals that are happening? Yes. The short answer is yes. The more nuanced answer is we don't quite know yet where they will stabilize because of the dynamic I mentioned prior in the conversation, which is this impasse and the fact that so many companies just are not raising. So we don't know what the quote unquote fair market value is for those companies. But even for the companies that are, it feels like there is a lower price sometimes as less as 20% off or 30 or 40% lower or 50% lower than what they would have raised at last year. Obviously, for companies that are perceived to be maybe not as hot or appealing, those quote-unquote discounts or normalization is are deeper than I'm sure the best of the best companies that you'll still have to pay a pretty exorbitant valuation for. It may not be exactly what you had to pay last year, but it's certainly not going to be 50% off the way the public SaaS companies have traded. You're still going to have to stretch and be just frankly a better picker in terms of what those best companies are and pay that forward. And that's going to make a why often say venture capital has come from this sort of cottage industry 10, 15 years ago, even frankly, seven, 10 years ago to now being this massive asset class, very institutionalized money coming in from everywhere. What that's causing is even evaluations are going to come down a little bit. There's too much capital out there and it's never going to come down exactly in concert with public markets. We're just going to have to be better pickers at partnering with the best companies that can overcome those crazy valuations and still become great returns and big, amazing businesses. I see. Before we go, I just have two easy questions for you. First one is, do you have a favorite business book that you could recommend? And maybe the one that would make people better pickers when they're looking at early stage companies or something like that. Uh, Listen, anything from Warren Buffett and any of them, even though it feels like old school advice is still very sound. And I think people all need to read that to, to sober up after the last couple of years. But I honestly, I stay away from the business books. I feel like I do too much of that in in my day job. I will say one that I've liked a while ago is a company called Red Notice. It's not going to necessarily teach you a lot, but it is this espionage sort of political finance thriller about a hedge fund manager that encounters corruption and fights for the truth. I'll just leave it at that. But I thought it was just incredible. In fact, I think one of my colleagues at Sapphire recommended it five, six years back, and I just really enjoyed reading it. So I would encourage others to, to do the same. All right, understood. So what's the best way for people to reach out and what kind of people would you like to hear from most? Yeah, reach out at my email, Rajiv at sapphireventures.com with any and all ideas. Again, we really back aspiring entrepreneurs and founding teams building incredible B2B software businesses. We, We invest in North America and Europe and Israel, and we're looking for those companies, the consequences, people that want to build something big and enduring and reach hundreds of millions of dollars of of ARR and and we've backed people of all types and origins and and spaces within the B2B software context, vertical, horizontal, et cetera. And so encourage folks to reach out and share their ideas with us. We're open for business and we just get a ton of delight working closely with management teams and helping them in whatever way we can. I think we hustle incredibly hard for our teams and we take that very seriously. 
Wonderful. So good luck to you, Rajiv, and Sapphire Ventures. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Rudolf. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.